0: and welcome to episode 334 of the Crate and Crowbar, PC gaming podcast recorded on the 29th of July, 2020. I'm Marsh Davis, and I'm joined this evening by Graham Smith. Hello. And Tom Senior. Hello.
1: Good Good day.
0: <laughs> Hello. Um, there's been some news this week, hasn't there? There was the uh, Xbox Games Showcase from the end of last week, which was, uh, which was right, wasn't it? Mixed feelings in the, in the discourse about some of the things that were shown. I thought uh, Halo looked bloody nice, but uh, I appear to be one of the only people.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I like. I'm not. I'm not a big Halo guy. I never have been. Um, I thought it looked okay. Like I thought it was going for a particular art style and delivering on that art style well. And that's where I kind of differ from a lot of the people criticizing it, who just seem to think, "Well, there's there's not that many polygons on screen. Where why should I expect?" I expect billions of polygons from a flagship new console game uh and they just seem to be crossed about pure graphical reasons rather than actual artistic intent reasons
0: yeah i mean this this was i i felt it was kind of discombobulating about it because i don't think i don't well i mean maybe i'm just out of step with what other people expected from halo One. Oh, sorry halo one <laughs> halo <laughs> that's Infinite. slip right there yeah, yeah but, but um I, I don't necessarily expect Halo to be the game which showcases next gen graphics, um, particularly. I mean, I'm, that's not the kind of thing that motivates me anyway. Really, I'm just more interested in, like you say, having a a good art style. I um, know, obviously, yeah. Like, like Tom says, it's a Freudian slip because it was obviously really trying to recapture the feeling of Halo One and Two, um, and I and so in a sense it was intentionally retreading old ground in its environments. So I'm sure there'll be stuff later in the game which which is less like Halo One, but they were just making this point with the trailer, which I think is a sensible point to make given that the recent game Halo games which are more divergent from that aesthetic haven't really captured the imagination in the same way that the first few installments did.
1: Hmm. Um, yeah, and they've they've been open all along. Like they said a couple of years ago that Halo Infinite was going to be they didn't use the phrase spiritual reboot like they used at the event itself which is a terrible phrase but they, they you know they said it was going to be revisiting halo one and two and the environments from that game and the style from that game and kind of giving it a, you know trying to create something that had that same feel and like i love the the art director of the game is a guy yeah who um uh, i i first stumbled across his work in like 2001 when he ran a Quake 3 mapping competition called Geocomp2, um, which were, was about creating these beautiful maps using just polygons and brushes, not textures or lighting or anything like that. And he created work for it that was like sculptural in its beauty and then turned out to be this incredible concept artist as well. And like, like if you compare... Halo Infinite to his concept art, you can see directly how they are actually just like creating the way he paints trees, for example, in the game. And like I like it for that reason. I don't need super photorealistic trees. And the other thing is like that's not that's not how Xbox are trying to sell this console. The thing that they said about Halo Infinite is that it's a quote 10-year platform there's not going to be halo infinite 2 two years down the line there's not going to be halo 6 they're just going to continually update halo infinite and it's a thing to get you to subscribe to game pass because you're just going to get a drip feed of halo content for the next 10 years if you do so so like that's that's the console that they're trying to get you to buy basically is a game pass account hmm.
0: yeah it's I, I don't know why people would want Halo to look super realistic. Like, I mean, it, it, to kind of push the the envelope of graphics to make that, that kind of level of heightened realism. I mean, Halo is a sort of game about shooting pink crystals at little space goblins and jumping over them and then <laughs> blowing them up with a, a, a giant fizzing purple grenade. It's not... <laughs> I, I don't know what people wanted from it that wasn't, wasn't this in a way. I, I feel like there's been this sort of... I think this is really, I mean, I think the whole debate about this is really interesting because it highlights something, a problem, I think, with the way that game development has sort of created this incrementalism of detail. It's like, it's like you move up from textures that are 256 by 256 to 512 by 512 and to sort of prove that you've done this you have to add more detail to that texture, like more scratches and more rivets mm. and more ridges to the armor. And this happens again and again and again. And you sort of get stuck in this sort of gravity well of detail instead of design. And you can see that like across I mean, like all games, but you can see it specifically in the drift... Um, across the last few Halo games, where Master Chief gets just sort of increasingly noisy, and his armor gets grayer and grayer, and more detailed, and further away from this sort of like the the kind of polygonal simplicity, which might have been restricted by the technology at the time, but was nonetheless sort of like was had these kind of simplistic forms, which which are kind of could still be aspirational, and this game sort of presses the reset button on all of that drift and says okay well what if we were making a direct translation from those those original designs to the technology of now and the technology of now is so sophisticated that it doesn't it doesn't need to prove that it's detailed or at least i don't think it should then you can have like like you can have a nice matte plastic surface and it can be a valid aesthetic choice and not a sign that you just ran out of texture budget you know (laughs) Yeah, I and think- you see that I think in a lot of the there's these really gorgeous material choices that the concept artists have made in in Halo Infinite, and the shapes that they use for the armor, both of Master Chief and the, and also on his weapons and and the enemies and the the uh, the big monkey men, the group the brutes have this really chunky plastic quality to their armor, which is has this sort of has the sort of form factor of like samurai plate armor. Uh, but it also looks like it's some kind of futuristic ceramic plastic blend with which has like just this solidity of Duplo. There's this kind of really kind of, <laughs> of chunky quality to it, and all of that stuff is there, and that's underpinned by sophisticated technology. You know, that's that's under underpinned by incredibly detailed um, uh, normal maps and uh, other kinds of um, maps that are overlaid onto albedo textures. And like all of that's in the demo, if you look for it. But people were complaining that it looked flat. And I think I think that comes. I mean, it's been analysed in great depth, but like it's just mostly being played in the shade that's I mean, that might have been a mistake from the perspective of how they set up that demo to showcase the graphics. But I mean it's it's mostly because it's just you know <laughs> they're playing in the half light so you're not going to get that kind of strike striking contrast as the sun strikes the you know the edge of the gun. but as soon as you do get into the light you can see all these kind of lovely suggestions of volume and specularity that's going on and it's still quite sophisticated and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are corners you know being cut on the global illumination that's used in the show because they have to because they have to ship this game across multiple, incredibly different platforms but I, I, the the counter side to that is there is some suggestion from the demo that the sunlight itself is is going to be a, a dynamic uh, light and day cycle which i mean given the sort of celestial grandeur uh, that uh, of the halo itself and the setting seems like that that might play quite a significant role Visually and and also, I don't know, maybe not mechanically, but. um.
1: But that's the sort of thing that I'm more interested in from a next gen Halo, because Halo was most exciting to me in that very first trailer before Microsoft even bought Bungie and and turned it into an Xbox exclusive when it was going to be a Mac game. Mm. Um, They did that nine minute long E3 trailer, which, um, you know, follows regular military grunts moving across the halo surface riding in the jeep with the lovely physics driving past like a river where animals are drinking and herding and running along beside it like it was almost like <laughs> no man's sky it was almost like no man's sky first trailer of like oh wow this mm-hmm. is a this is our real flowing world and master chief only comes in at the very end and it built up this sort of a mystique and a and an atmosphere that I don't think the full game fully paid off because it was not was, was obviously not as open as that trailer suggested, but there was something of that grandeur and the the systemic implied scale of it that that I always really like that was the fantasy to me. It wasn't about being a dude, a dude with a you know, motorbike helmet on, killing grunts and like that bit of it just in the trailer looks like well this just looks kind of like doom or rage 2 to me i <laughs> feel like this is just a action a colorful action game where you're where you're looping about with a grappling hook shooting things and the guns seem quite nice but i've i've played that game many times that game continues to get made by many companies every single year um but <laughs> I, I know there was another game at the xbox event that i thought had a similar thing which was stalker 2 Which is, like, incredibly exciting that they're making a new Stalker game. But what they showed was a CG trailer going, hey, look, it's the Ferris wheel in Chernobyl, and it's all ruined and stuff. You remember burnt-out cars and dilapidated buildings, right? And, like, presumably that's because that game doesn't actually exist yet. But that's also like that's not the fantasy of stalker. The fantasy of stalker for me was its crazy a life systems that we touched on last week where it's got this kind of ecosystem of um animals and creatures and other stalkers moving around the zone and the interplay of that and how that produces kind of dynamic results for the player um
0: yeah. It's hard to know who is actually making that Stalker, because I know there were some weirdnesses with the mm-hmm. name, and it got passed around various different people. And people were, who were the actual original developers of Stalker, or at least some group of them, seemed to be making something which was Stalker-related. But then I don't know if the license ended up with them. I think it's a multiplayer game, right? Like it was. Um,
2: I think a bunch of the devs broke off to make a kind of multiplayer shooter. Um, mm. Which had anomalies and a lot of the kind of stalker stuff in it, uh, but
1: it wasn't actually like stalker branded, if you know what I mean. Was that Savarium? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So this is being stalker two is being made by a company with the name GSC Game World, who were the developers of the original game. How many of the original developers are actually involved? I don't know because like it, it was weird the way it shut down originally. Um, yeah, it's all, a, all kind of a mess. So, I, yeah, I don't know who, who they really are, whether it's someone that just bought the rights to the company name and is wearing its skin. Hmm. What were the
0: uh, other games from the Xbox Showcase that caught your eye? Uh, let's have a look. So we've got Forza
2: Motorsport. That's a classic sort of like Microsoft um, standby, the, isn't the it? The boring
1: like talk- Forza. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, right. Horizon is so much better. But um, uh, yeah, so I, I, we'll get one of those. Um we've also got an RPG from Obsidian that looks a lot like Skyrim called Avowed. And for me, this was one of the most interesting reveals um, in the sense that Obsidian are constantly trying to drink Bethesda's milkshake. (laughs) (laughs) And this is sort of the latest uh, iteration of that uh, business strategy. Um, So it's a very kind of vague trailer. We don't know much about the game at all. It's set in the world of Pillars of Eternity, um, which is a good world, um, but it is a kind of first-person, dual-wielding, RPG Skyrim style. Um, and yeah, it's, it feels like they're sort of like attempts to, you know, sort of like uh, plant their flag on the the Skyrim uh, planets. What am I talking about? Um, <laughs> well, um, a, well, Bethesda is taking many, many years to make the next Zelda Scrolls, and that won't be around for a long time. Uh, but Beth- uh, like Obsidian could sort of, nick their biscuits
0: basically uh, by, uh, yeah, drink their milkshake up. nick their biscuits land on their planet
1: that's Got right <laughs> All the,
0: yeah um
2: <laughs>
1: what what is uh, uh, you said that pillars of eternity is a good world what is its thing because it seems very um t- traditional fantasy to me from screenshots which is my <laughs> only experience of pillars of eternity
2: yeah that's really true it's it's obviously like really chasing the kind of forgotten realms aesthetic but um, it's much more interesting in terms of like there's this kind of soul economy where souls are a kind of um, there you know a, um, a kind of type of money really that get traded and experimented with and um, yeah that that seems to be that's the most interesting part of the fiction really is that um, uh, you're sort of like trying to save souls but also spending them all the time to sort of make yourself more powerful. Um, which is kind of like a cool again Dark Souls touches on this, but like it's a it's an interesting take on that fiction where you don't just get more powerful for the sake of being powerful, like there's a cost to it, like a human cost. Um, yeah, and that's what kind of makes it interesting. Um also Deadfire is really, really good game, really underrated. That's the kind of pirate sequel to Birds of Eternity. Um, there's actually I think it's better. It's a better RPG. It's just more interesting. There's more places to explore. Um, you can be more different types of people in that game. Um, But I think loads of people were put off by the fact it's a sequel to this enormous, heavy RPG. Um, But in truth, you don't have to play the first game to enjoy the second game at all. Like, Deadfire is just really good in and of its own right. Hmm. Uh, So the idea of having, like, a a sort of first-person RPG set in those worlds um, is actually really promising.
1: Hmm, that sounds cool. Um, The other, other game that was there that I liked the look of was Everwild, the new rare game taking their like rare have almost completely rebranded themselves i guess from hey we make cutesy nintendo like stuff to through sea of thieves now we make sort of open-ish multiplayer experiences and that looks like another one of those but I mean, the trailer is sort of vague on details but it seems to be about saving woodland animals with your pals using some sort of strange vaguely pagan ma- magic system um but i'm like totally guessing like it looks like monster hunter if instead of hunting the animals you just kind of give them a nice cuddle <laughs> it
2: looks beautiful it's, it's sort of like uh cell shaded art style but it's that like really detailed and gorgeous i, th- I loved the presentation of that
0: yeah, the promise of it is really good, if, especially if it does uh, manage to avoid combat and somehow be an engaging mechanical experience about saving animals. Um, I'm down for that. I don't know how they're going to pull that off, but um, I mean, <laughs> if they do it well, I'm, I'd be very excited to play it. The exact other side of the spectrum to that is uh, the Warhammer 40k Dark Tide, in which you're definitely not kind to any animals. Um, seems to be Vermintide, but in the 40k setting rather than in the fantasy setting yeah that seems to be the case and
2: uh i'm very excited by that because fat shark like they nailed the tone of the old world in vermintide like they've really got it right uh the kind of mix of human horror um that that universe kind of it's it's weird because i've been reading a lot of kind of 2000 ad recently um and for me the 2000 ad and the warhammer universes are kind of entwined in terms of tone uh they really they both have this sense of like satire but also like you're supposed to take it seriously as well at the same time um and i think that um vermintide does that very well and i th- i expect that tone to carry on into dark tide um and they have also picked a very good like way into the warhammer 40,000 universe most of the time you, you play a big space marine who's is an enormous power fantasy basically um but this time you're kind of uh you're kind of mooks working for an inquisitor and there's an enormous like Nurgle infestation in the deep depths of this hive city, and you're the underdogs basically, and you're you you've been tasked to go in and clear this out, um, and no one cares if you survive or not, and that's that's for me spot on 40k. That is where 40k <laughs> fiction should happen, um, and they've they've found a good kind of place to actually stage that game. Um, I'm really excited about it.
1: Again,
0: no gameplay evident. No, <laughs> good point. Yeah, fact, for sure. was there anything that had uh, gameplay that we saw? *Psychonauts* That's two true. had some.
2: Um, oh yeah. yeah, but yeah, you know, um, <laughs> uh, *Hellblade* two. I think was that CGI. I think
1: um, *The Gunk* had some which is a game by Image and Form, the guys that do the SteamWorld games, like SteamWorld Heist and SteamWorld Quest and stuff, oh, yeah. which are all really fabulous. And this is like a 3D third-person action game in which you seem to be exploring like an alien planet which has been ravaged by like an oil slick surface that you're clearing up as you explore around. It kind of looks colorful and fun, but kind of Psycho Nazi, I guess.
2: Uh, there's always Hello Neighbor 2 which is uh, oh yeah. yeah in alpha right now you can play yeah I think it's free to download as well on Steam at the moment um, weird game that one because I, it seemed to get popular off the back of streamers if I remember correctly the first game mm. like it was it was very much like a, a you know a very popular Twitch game um, and in the second one the neighbor you're actually trying to rescue the neighbor <laughs> and instead you're being hunted by some sort of duck <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, and, I, and i don't know how to feel about that really um it looks really interesting it seems to have like i'm not quite sure how open an open world it is there is some space basically some rural landscape um through which you are being hunted by this uh yeah duck creature man thing hmm. um and it, it seems like you alternate between exploring this and being hunted by him and then trying to break into his or there house mm. um and uh it gives me quite sir you're being hunted vibes actually in some ways because the, the rural landscape and then within the building there's sort of alien isolationist, uh sort of game of cat and mouse um i didn't f- i haven't played the alpha but i'd say the, the trailer made the kind of bird-like movements of the duck creature uh make it very difficult to read um because it's very abrupt you know very quick mm. um so i i don't know how that how um how successful that will be because being able to read and sort of duke around the alien uh in alien isolation is is really what makes it work i think
1: it's, it's a, how the neighbor is a weird case cause like you can look up on steamcharts.com how many concurrent users it's got on Steam and how many it's ever had on Steam. And it's a pretty small number um, because it and it's it's vastly more popular on mobile than it is on desktop. Like it's got over 10 million downloads on Android because well, it's a free-to-play yeah. thing with in-app purchases. And like, you know, it took me a while to work this out because everyone, like they talk about Hello Neighbor as if it's like this hugely popular thing But if you look at it on PC, it's like, oh, but no one seems to have played this and no one who has played it seems to like it very much. But then they're beginning like, no, it's being turned into an animated TV series and stuff like that. What the heck is going on? And it's, yeah, it's because it's massive on mobile, essentially. So I would would think that this sequel would be targeting that same audience. The other big one that was at the event, again, no gameplay, was Fable. Oh, yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, excited for that. Yeah. Don't know what it is yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been in development for probably, what, three years now at least or something by Playground Games, who are the makers of the aforementioned Forza Horizon. They set up a new studio in Limick and Spa specifically to make this. Um, yeah, and yeah, no idea what it is. Parochial British humour, cheeky. That's what the trailer seemed to suggest.
2: I thought it was quite on point in terms of what I remember Fable to be like um, even though it was just like a very brief like 30 second CGI trailer. Uh, again, that that game probably doesn't exist, but we'll see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is that all, all of the uh, things you wish to talk about from the um, Xbox
1: showcase? Yeah, uh, I think so from me.
0: Yeah, there was
2: Tell Me Why from Don't Nod, but it's... Um, you know another kind of narrative adventure game from them and they've the <laughs> ones but uh, like you know like when you see a bad film trailer that's kind <laughs> of how all of their marketing <laughs> comes out um, for me um, so I, I, I don't know why who these characters are or why I need to care about them um, but they are good at making adventure games so um, I will certainly play it when it comes out that was mean.
1: <laughs> this is really mean. Actually, I tell you a thing I do like is that so it's a character about two siblings exploring a mystery, um, and I think it's got flashbacks in it, but one of the characters is a trans man, and prior to its release, don't know they have put out like a page on the game's website where basically it's just like a like a page of content warnings, but the opposite of content warnings. Because, um, there is such a bad history of LGBT representation in video games and other media where even when those characters are introduced, which is pretty rare in itself, they tend to befall terrible, <laughs> terrible things. Hmm. Um, and so Don't Not have put out a page where they basically say, don't worry. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Like We're not going to do any of the crappy things. Basically, they've said in advance, basically, these characters will have a happy ending Um, without giving away too many details or spoilers or anything like that. But I just thought that was a a, a nice, smart thing to do for a community which is obviously desperate for these kinds of stories to be told.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's right. So the other bit of news uh, this week which we could discuss is... Um, The uh, hiring and leaving of Mike Laidlaw from uh, Ubisoft Quebec. Um, I think he was there for a year before um, going off. This is Mike Laidlaw, who was one of the lead creators behind Dragon Age. Um, And apparently, while he was at Ubisoft Quebec, he was making a King Arthur-themed game called Avalon, which was then uh, ultimately cancelled on the instructions of the, the former chief creative officer are you sad about that
1: (laughs) i mean i'm not like a big dragon age person but mike laidlaw seems like a smart person and a good writer and i would be well up for ubisoft to continue their descent into rpg land like you know assassin's creed games have obviously become more RPG-like with the last two or three iterations. And so I was like, when they hired Michael Laidlaw, I was kind of interested to see them do more RPG stuff and less Assassin's creed old action-adventure stuff. Um, so from that perspective, I'm sad. I don't personally care about King Arthur as, as a bit of mythology.
0: <laughs> see, I, I care a lot about King Arthur, <laughs> but I don't really care about <laughs> this particular... Game because I mean we know nothing about it. Maybe it was the correct decision to can it because uh, if it was, you know, I'm not a huge uh, Dragon Age fan by any means either. So uh, if if it turned out not to be a particularly challenging or interesting take on King Arthur, then hmm. w- why why not have it binned off? I've, I've enjoyed. Um, I really like Dragon Age, and I
2: think it has like a a good, fully sort of filled out fiction behind it in the, uh, like. I want to see more stories set in that world. I think Mike Laidlaw is very much responsible for, for creating that. Um, so it feels as though like, he could do a King Arthur game justice. Um, but it sounded like, the way it's been reported, it sounded like it just got binned off on the whim of an executive, um, which is sad, <laughs> if that's true. Um, but we, of course, we don't know what the actual circumstances are around that game's
0: cancellation. Hmm. Yeah. Should we talk about what we've been playing this week? What have you been playing, Graham?
1: I've been playing Carrion, or Carrion? I don't actually know how you pronounce it, Um, which is a game about a B-movie monster um, trying to escape from a research facility, uh, and everything that's good about it is wrapped up in that monster, essentially so um if you've been if you've been following the developers on twitter or just existing on twitter within game spaces i think you'll have seen gifs of it over the last two or three years because it really does look incredible the the monster to describe it a bit is like a a, a meaty dripping tenderly red mass like a like a like someone poured some spaghetti over a meatball marinara Uh, um, there is just something completely gross about it and then it moves in the game in the most incredible way with using procedural animation if you um click in any direction within the world tendrils from your body shoot out and cling to the walls and then seem to like drag you in the direction that you want to go um and you're because you're this kind of um like meaty, viscous mass. You leave like a, a blood slick smear across every surface you touch. Um, and your body sort of, as you move quickly, your body elongates into this kind of sausage. But then when you come together, the sausage kind of re um, back into like a, a central mass. And it's, it's, it's really quite disgusting. And, delightful to watch and because it's a it just it just looks kind of like almost perfect like the way that it kind of drags and shifts its weight around using physics and procedural animation and it's also just it's extremely liberating because it's a 2d game in which gravity is no obstacle like you can be in an elevator shaft click upwards and your hideous hideous form will just reach out with its tendrils and very easily pull yourself upwards and you can pick up a like a lot lot of momentum um but that's that's basically like that's the part of the game i really love and then everything else stretches from mediocre to infuriating (laughs) (laughs) uh because it's a it's a metroidvania and it's a very by the numbers metroidvania i would say and like that's not i quite like metroidvanias but i'm not like a massive fan of the genre or anything and what it means in this instance is you start out with a, a basic set of powers like um you you can you can chomp on people, you can do a little growl in order to locate nests in the environment, and then bit by bit you gain new powers that let you access new areas of the environment. Um, normally in order to flip a switch, to open a door, to move on through the game. And so you get powers and the powers are all pretty cool, like parasitism, the ability to like sneak out one of your tendrils and grab a person and then control the human being and walk them around and then you use them to press a button to open a door for you. Or you can um, turn into like a mass of, like a swarm of worms when you're underwater, which allow you to bypass certain grates so you, that you can, on the other side, press a button to open a door for you. Um, and Basically every power you get, it's quite cool, but then you don't really feel like you're using it to any particular cool purposes. I feel like in like in the John Carpenter's The Thing, say, like if any time it or the alien from Alien wasn't on screen, he was actually just running around some service corridors, pressing switches, trying to get to the next area of the Nostromo or whatever, like that would be less frightening and less fun. And that's true here as well. Um, you do also use those powers in combat, of course, but, The combat also didn't work for me. Like, it's fine when it's easy. In fact, it's really fun when it's easy, when you're just like you can quite early on one of your first powers is like this bash move that like thrusts you forward at speed and you can use that to slam down doors and you can use it to slam down doors and then slam into any of the people on the other side and they get tossed in the air and you can grab them out there with one of your tentacles and drag them towards one of your mini mouths and chomp them to bits and by chomping them to bits you grow in mass and that lets you shift through different stages of like your your size um Because you own, although you unlock, you know, 10 or more powers over the course of the game, like main powers, um, you only ever have at most really three accessible to you at any one time. And which three is determined by what size you are. And there are three different sizes. So you can go into like pinky water and do like a, substantive fart in order to leave behind some of your mass in the pinky water or you can go and chomp on people and you will grow in size and and unlock those other powers and so you then that becomes part of the metroidvania thing of oh i need to use a power from my small size i'm going to deposit some meat here i'm going to do a thing then i'm going to go back pick up my meat and go using my larger powers go do the thing but in combat you see the trivially easy because it's just like hapless scientists that are just running away from you. Or there are a couple of enemy types. Like there's a security guy who has like a laser shield he holds in front of you. If you crash into that laser shield, it just starts destroying bits, bits of your mass. So you get smaller essentially because your size is also kind of your health bar. Um, but it never created that sort of experience I wanted from the game, which is again, that movie monster thing of like, if you're if you're one of the regular humans hearing a noise coming from a ventilation shaft and then something bursting out of that ventilation shaft and grabbing you and dragging you inside. Um, There are lots of ventilation shafts in the game, lots of grates to burst from. But it was never necessary against any of the enemies to use those kind of stealth tactics or trap set traps or lure people in. The AI is quite stupid. They will put themselves in harm's way quite readily and i'd almost always felt like i was just kind of cheesing it like it was always just hide around the corner until their alert state stops and they turn their back and then try and move quickly enough that i can get the guy before he turns on his laser shield and if i don't and if i get there and he turns on his laser shield i'm going to retreat And I'm going to wait for him to turn off his sneezer shield and turn away again. And I just did that for most of the game. There were a few like harder enemy types that are like robots and people in mech suits and stuff. But those either chewed through me in seconds, setting me back to a checkpoint so I had to repeat part of the game. Or I would then just do it a second time, do the exact same thing, but this time I would just trivially tear it apart. Mm-hmm. And there never felt like there was any learning experience there between like, oh, I, I understand what I did wrong now. I'm going to do, try something different. I'm going to try a different tactic. Like, there never felt like there was any tactic to the combat. And it's, a, it's, an, it's an action game, um, but I still wanted some sort of brainy meat to it to go alongside with the... The action meet. Um, and then the real, the real thing that I think crippled it for me is that it's trying to convey what you should do in any instance wordlessly. Like it doesn't, obviously it doesn't make sense for. A big gristly, dripping, oozing meat monster, to have like a quest giver that he, you go talk to it that tells you what to do or where to go next. And so there's very little words of any kind in the game. You never talk to another character or anything like that. Um, even when you're controlling a human, there's no there's no real dialogue or anything. And there's no map. And this just meant that, given, like it's the, the world is split up into distinct, discrete um screens some of which have like four or five entrances and exits most of the environments are kind of like gray metal military underground research facility type environments um it's incredibly easy to just end up going in circles not not knowing what you're even looking for just knowing that you ha- maybe you haven't done something you're supposed to have done yet to, in order to unlock the next area maybe you have unlocked the next area and you just don't know where the entrance to the next area is and there's nothing to tell you at that point you just have to like keep shipping around Um, at great speed through these different rooms, working out, okay, if I go that way, I I double back on myself. What if I go back and on that third screen of the five screens I just looked through, what if on that third screen I try going down this way until eventually, hopefully, you find, oh, there's this button here I haven't pressed. and Sometimes it's a completely arbitrary thing. Sometimes it's like a little hole in the wall that you have to squeeze inside that the art does not do a good enough job of communicating to you wordlessly that, hey, this is a thing that you need to pay attention to sometimes in like there are like these kind of um I think the flashback flashback sequences where you're controlling a human being and at one point opening the door to the next area requires you to just look at Everything in that environment, and one of the things in the environment is just a thing on a wall. There's like three things on the floor and one thing on a wall, and you just have to go look at them, and that's what kind of like prompts the game to move forward. There's lots of instances as the monster as well, where the thing that opens the door is actually arbitrary. It's not actually connected to the door in any visible way. It's just, yeah, it's completely gamified in that way and so like that just meant that i was never able to relax or really enjoy shipping around as the monster that much i was just constantly anxiety about missing stuff um, constantly getting lost constantly feeling impatient and combined with the fact that it's quite a by the numbers mediocre metroidvania anyway um you know this is quite negative isn't it and it's just like a long monologue of negativity
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I played it too and I I wish I could uh, contrast with anything you said, but actually we are of uh, one mind, one meaty brain. (laughs) Um, Uh, Does the game have a map? No, there's no No. map. Well,
2: that's where that's that's gone wrong. I think (laughs) Metrovina Metrovina just needs a map and
1: like yeah hopefully
2: it is the best for me honestly
1: <laughs> i can sort of see like you know because um hollow Knight, for example was beloved and it doesn't have a map at first a map is an item mm. that you have to actually craft by like yeah. by, by going through a certain chunk of the game um but it's also that game is just designed in a way that it's much more navigable like it's much easier to construct in your mind uh and like that's tied to every other design decision in the game like just the movement speed in Carrion is you're so quick it's completely anathema to that movement speed to say oh actually you should be drawing a map of this or trying to mentally map it when you may be on only on a screen for like four seconds like if you've mm-hmm. already been there before that's how long it's going to take you to get from one side to the other so it's just yeah it's it's an odd choice for this for this particular game i think
2: i think it's it's slightly it's odd that it's an action game because like the first thing i thought of when i saw it and spoilers for inside but um Mm. the game inside kind of um at some point in the story creates a similar fantasy and (laughs) a, a roller coaster and it's almost like kind of scripted for you um and it's not like a full action game in and of itself it's just a kind of very strange twist of events. Um, I love yeah, that,
1: in inside, like I love that game. Yeah, yeah. That's it's just incredible.
2: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I, I just wondered, like, if there's any comparison between the two. I guess not really. It's like a, a Metro: Vania action game where you're playing as a creature, instead of just like suddenly becoming the creature, um, which is what's so good about Inside.
1: Now, the sort of the closest comparison would be maybe Ape Out which is similarly right. about and you know a creature in in that case an ape <laughs> trying to escape from a bunch of like you know scientists and guards basically that are keeping you trapped and and then that's an action game that you just kind of like trying to beat your path out using the particular skills of an ape but in that, there's no Metro, Metroidvania elements. It's just, no, there is a level. You're trying to get to the exit. If you start on the left-hand side of a level, the exit's going to be on the right-hand side. Um, even if it's a multiple-floor multiple, multiple floor level, you'll get to the right-hand side of one floor, and you'll go down to the next level, and you'll start on the right-hand side, and you know you have to go to the left-hand side, therefore. Mm-hmm. And so like there's never any point of getting, getting lost. Where as soon as there's all the switches and, oh, you can't get through that kind of door, you can't get through that kind of door, you can't get through that kind of door, oh, you need to unlock these powers first. As soon as you add all that structure to it, I feel like you need need a map more at the very least, or you need an art style, which is really distinct and really communicative, which I don't think this has.
0: Yeah, I think that was my problem with uh, trying to map it, uh, you know, in in terms of memory, is that... All of the different environments, and they are subtly differentiated when you go from one zone to another. They just look very similar, and because it's side on, um, it sort of doesn't—it's not able to create realistic spaces f- for the kind of the purposes. So everything just looks like you know uh, a slice through an ant ant colony, basically. Mm not really, they don't have any kind of meaningful um, shape to any of these single screens. It's just like here's a, a bunch of negative spaces that are interlinked, and some of them have people running around on them and have computers in them, but in no other way do they feel like an office space, you know? It's not like you can kind of then identify them in any for any kind of use or theme, which would allow you to then memorize, memorize where they are or even be able to really remember why they're different from the room that they're adjoined to. And so, and, and the, the beginning of the game just bundles you through them so, so quickly, like room after room after room after room. And some of them have things in them which you only later unlock skills to access. But just, you, you know, like Graham says, the speed of the movement is such that you've been through, I don't know what, Maybe forty rooms <laughs> <laughs> by the time that the game slows down and unlocks something for you and says, "Oh, actually, you're going." I hope you're hope you're remembering all of that stuff you just been through in five minutes. You're like, I really wasn't.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's also like the the it breaks its own continuity of space regularly as well. Look, like I eventually worked out that there was a kind of hub area from which I could access like there were like a hub big atrial hub with spokes of it that i could go and access the different areas of the world but it was four hours through the game before i realized that and the game's only like five hours long because up until that point like each section finishes by you opening a giant exit that you then breach through and appear somewhere completely different in the world. And so, like, I don't know where I am now in relation to where I just was or in relation to anywhere else I have ever been. And you will come across a thing and you go, oh, there's a, there's a locked door there to a new area. I can see the new area on the other side. I have to get through there at some point. But then you'll go through one of those, basically, portals, come out somewhere else. And I'm like, well, how do I get back now <laughs> to where I just was? Uh, it's just, yeah... I don't want to labour the point, and I already have. So, <laughs> kick the shit Looked out nice of the kiss, yeah, it does. And, the, and it still looks really great in the game. The other, in fact, the other thing I would say though is that the thing about games, right, is you don't actually stare at the character you're controlling at all times. So, like all that lovely procedural animation, after about three minutes, you stop noticing it because you're looking at the world around you. You're not looking at yourself, <laughs> like just be looking at where you're trying to go. And so you stop noticing that all the tentacles perfectly grip to the walls and, and shift your weight in satisfying ways. It still feels liberating to move with that speed and without gravity as a problem. But, yeah, you do stop noticing it pretty quick. What have you been playing, Tom? Um, well, I've been playing um, uh, the
2: very new game Battlefront 2, Star Wars Battlefront 2. And... Um, oh, really? this was um, consumed by controversy over loot boxes when it was actually released. Um, but it's actually quite a good dice shooter, actually <laughs> um and like now all the kind of loot box nonsense has been mostly removed from the game it's um, it's a very very good piece of fan service for Star wars fans um just in terms of just the sound design dice games like, have like, incredible credible sound. Um, all the Battlefield games have incredible sound and to see them turn their talents to Star Wars has been a delight um, it's actually got like quite a fun single player campaign as well as like still populated multiplayer servers um, and I'd basically recommend it because it's on sale at the moment I think um, for about half price and it's actually like it's just, it doesn't suck <laughs> it kind of got some... <laughs> which is um apparently as much praise as I could give any game at the moment <laughs> um, it doesn't suck and uh especially if you like Star Wars I think like as a pe as a piece of kind of like uh an aesthetic experience you, like so imagine you went to Disney world and they put on the ultimate Star Wars experience for you and it was all kind of like people dressed in costumes and stuff don't pay for that just play Battlefront too. <laughs> it's, it's, it's basically that kind of level of detail and um, you know attention to the design of the original films, um, right down to the precise reflectiveness of the stormtrooper helmets and stuff like that. Uh, that it gets absolutely right, and it's also uh, it's brilliant at capturing how rubbish stormtroopers are <laughs> at actually shooting people. Uh, so you you get these uh, laser blasters. And they can't hit anything for shit. They just can't. <laughs> so, um, what ends up happening is that you have this sort of like, it's a di- dynamic situation where everyone's trying to shoot each other. No one could fucking hit each other, <laughs> but you get this storm of blaster bullets that are kind of whizzing around your head. And that is that's Battlefront 2. It's not like a sensible shooter, <laughs> or perhaps even a good one, <laughs> but uh, it creates that's it, re- it recreates the Star Wars atmosphere brilliantly. Um, I think it should be celebrated for that uh and like occasionally you get to sort of like go to tie fighter as well that's really nice i
0: i heard that it has um has giant insects in it is can you confirm or deny that (laughs) it has giant insects hilariously in the single player mode where
2: um there's one mission where for some sort of mandated reason you have to be luke skywalker (laughs) and what he does in that level is beat up spiders um and it's just like perfect fan service that's what all the fans want (laughs) right absolutely not even a rancor at least give me a rancor deal um yeah and 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 that's bollocks (laughs)
0: that's bollocks isn't it but i really um, enjoyed that it inspired uh andy kelly to write an article about how he hates uh fighting giant insects in games and he's obviously completely right <laughs> but for some reason, I don't know why. This I looked at the comments underneath his he article. Got blasted for that one. I don't no, know why. It's amazing. But those, uh, my favourite of the criticisms was that somebody hates uh, all these millennial editorials that are now popping up on PC games. <laughs> like <I just laughs> the idea that it's that fighting giant insects is a real millennial problem. Or the grudging, like these you know boomers from Yorkshire going, "In my day, we used to fight insects, and we bloody liked it." <laughs>
2: um yes we get some truly stupid comments on our website <laughs> uh, that's the lesson that's the lesson i'll take from that yeah i have spoke about this earlier i don't understand at all like someone tweeted at andy saying that it was some sort of anti-microsoft conspiracy that we disliked fighting giant insects that absolute rubbish um but anyway yes i agree with andy like, like it, giant insects are a, quite a lazy archetype for video game enemies um,
0: I thought it was a bit mean about um, uh, Half-Life's Antlions, though, which I think get a get good. a pass. I do like those. Also, the fact you can control
2: them like that. yeah, That's a good turnaround. I, like, I really like having the pheromone, the sort of bomb thing. Um, Gives them real personality. I yeah, think. yeah. And also, it's great when you go um, from the moment where you meet the Antlions, when you actually get to go into the prison level, which is actually like, mm. um, and you actually start controlling the Antlions in that arena and messing up Combine soldiers. That's like, that's really fun. It's actually one of the worst levels of the game, but um,
1: because it's got one simple mechanic, I think it's rescued. They're amazing in Half-Life Alex as well because you can blow their legs off individually, and if you shoot two of their oh, legs I off, their, their kind of big, big bulbous rear starts um, pulsating and they leap up into the sky, and then you have an opportunity to basically shoot them and burst burst their bodies like a oh, like a yeah. It's, it's yeah it feels great That
2: <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> I don't really have much else to add about Battlefront 2 just that like um just to people just give it a chance
0: get why it did, why did you
2: go back to it well it was on sale on PSN and I remember it always being like beautiful on PC um but it's also absolutely hilarious like it's very very funny to just get fucked up by yoda <laughs> as a stormtrooper. like i uh, like it's an absolutely ridiculous game in terms of the way it actually kind of handles the star wars heroes in that universe and they um so you sort of like some will earn enough sort of Kill points or whatever, and they'll be able to access. They'll be able to become Darth Maul. Um, and what you'll hear is like a, a kind of <laughs> over the kind of video phone. You'll get, uh, oh, Darth Maul is on the field. It's like, oh yeah, we're all fucked then. <laughs> you'll sort of see him coming from a mile off, this little kind of like little glowing lightsabers uh, on the horizon, and he's coming for you, and he's going to kill you, <laughs> and. That's oh, it's so dumb. It's so so dumb. I think I think Chris has talked about this before actually, because like uh, Chris is much more well versed in like Star Wars Law than me, um, and has much more respect for it than I do. Um, but <laughs> but even though I have a very limited respect for the law, I can even even I can appreciate how little regard this game holds the law. <laughs> um, like it like it does not care how stupid it is. Um, and I kind of it's really good fun actually um but yes it's stupid but good i think <laughs> but also maybe not good <laughs> consult chris thurston he'll know better
0: but it's cheap and that's the most important well, oh, well thing. That's, that's a very important part of it yeah for sure
1: <laughs> what have you been playing marsh
0: i've been playing super hot mind control delete Ooh. um Hmm. Which I think I think began maybe you remember this better, but I think it began life as actual just DLC for Super Hot. Uh but it's since become a standalone game. That is it's free to those who own the original game, but you can buy it separately or buy it as a bundle at a discounted rate. Anyway, the original uh SuperHot was, if you're unaware, this supremely stylish, stripped down short form shooter, which was built around this single brilliant gimmick, which is that time only moves when you do and its shtick was to sort of drop you right in the middle of some frantic action movie scenario where you know the table's been flipped over at the casino and somebody's pulling a gun for your head and there's bullets whizzing through the air or even you know you're in an alleyway and this van is just hurtling towards you um but because move time only moves when you do you have all the time you need to plot out your strategy for how you might escape this terrifying scenario and in doing so, you end up piecing together these fluid sort of superhuman series of feats where you vault over the roof of a car and duck under one of the whizzing bullets and smack the gun from the hand of one guy, catch it in midair and shoot another. And uh, that's really cool. Um, <laughs> uh, Mind Control Delete, is it's more of the same of this uh, stylish combat sandbox. But instead of being this sort of linear preordained sequence of levels that set up really, you know, particular authored action scenarios. Um, The game has been sort of retooled for repeat play. So um, instead, you have this sort of it's not really an overworld map. Uh, Maybe it's an overworld map. I don't know. It sort of resembles an ASCII dungeon crawler uh, level. And you sort of move between these nodes, and each node then boots up this randomized sequence of first-person encounters Mm and you're you're thrust into a level and you have to kill a certain number of enemies before you move on to the the next randomized random level uh in that node sequence um and if you survive all the levels within that node sequence you unlock extra paths in this overworld map Uh, if you die you immediately restart that sequence of uh, levels within that node. i've heard i've heard the words procedural generation being used about the game um and I think that's really misleading. I mean, technically, there may be some element of procedural generation to it, but I mean, I think it's more that some elements of the levels are randomized. Uh, I think if you say procedural generation, people would think that the levels themselves are modular and can be reconfigured uh, in a dramatic way. And that really just isn't the case. You are are playing the same levels again and again and again, um, just in a randomized order in each node. um, And... There are different sequences of enemies that spawn from different doors where you spawn is different and each time you play it and as you progress through the game and you uh you get different powers at your disposal and more levels unlock and there's walls that start getting added to existing levels where there are previously none but overall the layout of the levels doesn't change um which is not at all criticism the, the levels are persistently fun and you don't need to change particularly because Uh, As you explore this overworld, you unlock new abilities that alter the way that you engage with these combat encounters. Um, And these aren't things that you have just at your disposal all the time, but they build up a pool of upgrades that you can choose to activate during the course of a single node run. So you murder some dudes in the first level of node, and then it says you pick between bouncing bullets or increased melee speed and range or you pick an upgrade that gives you the ability to immediately fire your gun again as whenever you score a kill or gives you a temporary health boost for every kill and these power-ups are kind of cool um, and diverse and they do make you alter your tactics to accommodate them and i really like the fact that you aren't fully in control of what you have available to because it makes you to choose between two um in between different levels within a node um the exception to this i'd say is is the major weakness of the game which is that um it actually classifies the most powerful upgrades separate to these and lets you choose which you use before each node um these are these are much more dramatic power-ups like having an extra life for the duration of that node uh, or being able to leap huge distances or exchange places with the enemy or best of all uh you have a magical katana which you can throw and recall to your hand like thor's hammer yeah it, it's it's fucking amazing <laughs> and, and
1: the,
0: but the thing is as soon as you get it there's no reason to choose anything else <laughs> hmm. and it's so powerful um and, uh, like and it's, it's powerful in a way which just removes part of the game because otherwise the game's main one of the main tactical problems you have in the game is how do I acquire weapons? because the guns you if you pick up a gun, you use up its ammunition very, very quickly and so you need to discard it, take another weapon from some somebody else or find one in the environment and doing that is, is part of the major challenge of the game. Um, but if you just constantly have a magic katana at your disposal, um, although there is a cooldown on how long you know you you need to wait before you can recall it, it largely just removes that entire need to engage with the the game's uh, sort of threat. I mean, I like it because it makes me feel awesome and it makes the game kind of <laughs> easy, but I do think it would be better if it was withheld or you were forced to play with the other cores, uh, the other sorry, the other major power ups without you know without being. Given the option to choose, um hmm. my main memory that the original Superhot was desperately throwing a bottle at
2: a man's head over and over again—that I've kind of snatched up from a, a chair nearby. And I guess it's sort of the
0: idea of an infinitely respawning katana does kind of undermine that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. The the first game, it was much more about throwing things to disarm your enemies than taking their weapons, whereas this increasingly becomes pretty instantly lethal, but it, it does do things to counteract that uh, where it has it throws new enemy types at you, some of whom have invulnerable body parts, or are largely invulnerable apart from one body part uh, or they have weapons that shatter when they die, or um, they, or when you shoot them, they explode in a hail of deadly shrapnel hmm. um, Cool. and there's more of them and they move faster and Ah, uh, eventually the you have a chance of spawning uh, bosses. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly the mechanics which define when they can spawn, um, but they appear at least at least once during uh during a sort of run at a single node, and they're really disappointing. Honestly, like uh, none of them can be killed, uh, which I think is probably what? yeah. But, well, so. It, I can see why they've done that. It's a really crude way to solve one of the game's other issues, which I'll come to later. But um, the the main problems with them is that they just they just have these sort of cheaty ways of killing you. And one one's this cool-looking dog-headed man who, who sort of scampers around and then pounces at you from range. But he can just seemingly pounce through walls, which sort of... Oh, good. It just feels a bit like cheap to be killed by him like oh well i guess guess i'm starting that and run again for no real good reason and there's another one which can th- has the same throw and recall katana power that you do um but again his katana seems to clip through walls so you just feel like oh well you know <laughs> couldn't have done anything about that um and then there's another one which carries normal weapons and he periodically just sort of uses his mind to teleport you into the place where he was and exchange places with you but actually, that's of no obvious advantage to him. <laughs> like, it's no, There's no disadvantage to being moved elsewhere. Usually, it's usually a good thing. Um, but I mean, the solution to all of them is move away. Just You just move away from them, um, which is welcome. But also, it's not really like a dramatic or varied way to deal with this, this kind of characterful boss threat. Like, Non-engagement with them doesn't really offer any kind of sense of expression. And if you do get killed by a boss, like I say, it just you, you know, especially if one just spawns from a doorway that's really near you, it just feels like a shitty reason to die. But the reason that being forced to move at all is welcome is because um, this is the the other kind of sort of main problem with the the game that emerges from its design in comparison to its predecessor. The predecessor didn't sort of had. I mean, these levels don't have intended solutions, and although the first game right. wasn't exactly prescriptive. There was usually some sort of suggested pseudo puzzle-ish strategy that it had been designed for, even if you had a lot of freedom within that. Whereas these are just combat sandboxes, really pure combat sandboxes. Oh. And as such, you just you know, the best thing to do is just to go behind a corner. And it's just too easy to find a stretch of corridor between two corners. And just pop out and nail people as they as they um, run up to your safe zone, and you can take out (laughs) even the exploding dudes. You know you can just stab them uh, and then duck back into cover again before their shrapnel hits you. And it's not like I'm not saying that's like a a guaranteed cheese, but it's definitely like the path of least resistance. Um, And so by having the bosses being unkillable, it does mean that they provide the service of chasing you out of those. But I mean, otherwise they just aren't very exciting in of themselves um i
2: was, I was thinking this as, as you're describing that um oh first of all by the way uh, a shitty way to die should be the next james bond uh <laughs> tagline um <laughs> secondly um so for me like the first game in particular was a big enormous homage to action films to hard-boiled and to like like a lot of scenarios like the prison fight uh are basically scenarios that i've seen put into films and that to me, that was a lot of the value of Superhot was that you get to feel like a badass actually playing through these scenarios that you've already seen on film, um, and it sounds like the new take on this sort of roguelike take on it isn't quite as satisfying in that way.
0: Yeah, I, I do, I do agree. Like the the way it's set up, uh, the challenges in the first game was very you know intendedly cinematic like uh, yeah. they were all scenes at least from from an action movie that you recognize or echoes of um, but I mean it, even though the, the game doesn't do a good job of uh, this game doesn't do the same job of setting up uh, those combat encounters in the same cinematic way like the environments are still very kind of um, redolent of, of action movie scenes like there's one in a sort of yeah, casino disco sort of place and, and you know there's a uh a helipad on top of an oil rig and these kinds of <laughs> these kinds of places you don't really not all of them really uh, exude personality um because you're mostly looking for those corners for you to hide behind mm. um yeah i don't it does i mean it does do periodically this absolutely brilliant visual trick um, which must be some sort of wild shader effect applied to the level geometry. Um, and it makes... So it makes the levels look like they exist as completely normal in a five-foot radius around you. And then everything else just sort of telescopes in from infinity as you move towards it. What? Yeah, it, it's, it's trippy as fuck. I mean, it looks amazing. Um, and it's the kind of effect that really only this medium can pull off. Mm. Um uh, it doesn't work at all in a game about <laughs> facial positioning. Oh, <laughs> because, and, and mostly because entities and collision detection are unaffected by this. So you'll shoot someone and your bullet will just hit a wall which hasn't telescoped into reality oh, yet. Forgotten. And so that's just shite. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Um, which is sad. Um, yeah. I, the other thing I want to mention is the, the story such as it is.
1: I wanted to ask about this because the like the thing I remember about the first super hot was it being that sort of obnoxious r- radical sort of tone. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a kind of early noughties in your face, meta narrative thing um, that I find quite exhausting.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs>
1: Does this do that as well.
0: Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, you know, I actually kind of admire the strict scoping of it, which is to say that, like, I don't know that you would... It's certain The game certainly wouldn't be- benefit from having a more explicit narrative attached to it. Like, it doesn't really want for any kind of story to frame it. Um, so instead, they've gone for this glib meta framework to just fit around it. Uh, and it constantly reminds you through these sort of, you know it's he's, he's constantly telling you that these sort of, Oh, just one more go games are meaningless and you're ultimately wasting your time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's like, yeah, all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I think, I think it could have worked. Like it's, it's, it's really nicely for what it is. Even though you might think it's a little bit twatty, it is. It is really nicely, precisely executed, <laughs> and, and like I think, and I think the minimum of it disguises what a large amount of work actually it is to design an absence of story just as it's just <laughs> as much work to design for an absence of story as it is to design for a story i speak from experience here because it's not actually a million miles from the direction that i was trying to take minecraft dungeons which was to have the game story be about not having any story or rather having the player continuously thwart a narrator's attempts to tell a story Um, They abandoned this direction completely after I left, (laughs) I'm sorry to say, but maybe they were very sensible to do so because at least in Mind Control Deletes case, you're being told that you're wasting your time and this game offers only empty addiction, ends up feeling hectoring and annoying and also just kind of wrong because like towards the end of the game, you're opening these sort of what are meant to be semi-corrupted text files that talk about oh i'm being mindlessly compelled to see all the content give me more content i must see the end and actually like by that point i was just really searching for an excuse to stop playing i wasn't really i don't really want more content i just want the game to say okay it's, well it's okay to stop now yeah like i, I don't mean to, to sound mean about that it wasn't that i hated the game by this point or anything it's just i think that most games out their they're welcome and actually it's not addiction that keeps me going mm. it's just a sort of weird sense of politeness <laughs> <laughs> because the game hasn't told me it's okay to stop yet but um actually so i mean to, to, the actual ending of of mind control delete um is i mean it's sort of awful but it's also kind of good in that regard in that it it forces you to stop playing the game and uh you have to leave the game running for a period of time but d- but passive in order to ever be able to play it again and they, i think they reduce the amount of time this this should take from something like eight hours to maybe one and a half or something in a patch god's sake but well you say that but also <laughs> like it's probably right that you should have stopped by then. Like, it's it, this is it's quite a good service that a game that you can endlessly play just says, "All right, mate, you've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, walk away, get on with your life." Yeah, but it should if turn... you really, really want to play it again. You can, but like, it, you shouldn't. It should turn itself <laughs> off rather than making you sort of walk around with some sort
2: of promise of future content. <laughs> That's like uh, Death, yeah. Death Stranding does this as well. It's terrible. Um, like, it's, it, I think it's just a game design crime just a waste player's time for no reason <laughs> um and for no sort of thematic like i mean it doesn't sound like you've really got anything extra from the story from that experience um it was just annoying
0: <laughs> yeah i mean uh but also I, i'm not going to wait to play it again because i'm not going to play it again I, I i think it it judged it judged the amount of uh mind control delete that it is necessary for one human to imbibe and it effectively prevented me from ever inviting <laughs> more. <laughs> uh, I'm, actually, well. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. Yeah, yeah fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. It seems to like have
2: gotten you at precisely the right point. But uh, I imagine, like a complete a completionist, someone who really wants to actually kind of like rinse a game and get it all 100%ed. Um, would be kind of screwed over by that
0: type of ending <laughs> well yeah i mean i mean i mean that is the exact sort of mindset that uh, mind control delete is meant to be sort of satirizing very very i mean mm-hmm. you know annoyingly facetiously or or you know uh, whether you think that that is a worthwhile satire to to uh place as a burden upon the player um or not i mean that that is what it's addressing yeah i think that's i think that's bollocks <laughs> <To be honest. laughs> i think like um
2: completionist players just have take their own type of pleasure from games i'm not one of those players but i don't see the worth in insulting that way of playing games um let's say if you want to 100 percent and co- totally complete a game then go ahead and enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it um so i, I hate the idea of like a game
0: lecturing me about that i think that really sucks well you can't complete it really i mean this, this I, I mean it periodically flashes up messages on screen like there is no ending there will be no closure <laughs> like this. so i mean it's it, it, it sort of, it setting out its stall <laughs> right, right, right yeah fair enough. yeah
1: shall we do some questions Some questions
0: yeah why not i think that sounds like a jolly good idea
1: <laughs> lovely what are the questions
0: So our first question is from David, and he says, Dear Cads and Crawdads, uh, I set notorious Stuck-in-the-Muck Marsh Davis as my ringtone for a couple of weeks. Being at home meant only my wife would hear it and roll her eyes at me. I changed it after it went off while working at a distance on a friend's porch. Thanks, Andy. (laughs) Now for a question. I'd be interested to hear how y'all rates relates to gore in games. While well, playing Doom 2016 a few years ago it occurred to me how strange it was to revel in the red gushing of dismembered demons. Why do I enjoy this, I asked. So I tried to understand Doom's violence in artistic or formal terms. In other words, what is it about ripping the arm off an imp and using that arm to swat the imp's face that relates to the feel of gameplay and the overall science fantasy conceit? Now, how does it play off video games' short history as using colourful effects to tell the player they did just did something. Alex Wiltshire's article on the brutal Doom mod for the original Doom was helpful in this regard. I think that gore in games is more closely related to confetti and fireworks than it is to realistic violence. Superhot's polygonal shards are an intermediary example between high-res gore in Doom or Mortal Kombat and abstract particles in, say, Geometry Wars. So what's up with them gibbs Or jibs, if you prefer. Thanks for reading, everybody. David.
1: I think that's, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. But the, the gore that I I like the most, or I miss the most, and this is going to make me sound like a terrifying lunatic, <laughs> um, is it's not the not exploding into a, a shower of jibs as you do in the Doom games, or as the enemies do in the Doom games. It's like the Soldier of Fortune gore. Because there was something compelling about, say... Playing a multiplayer game, shooting someone on the other side of a, of a rooftop from great distance, and then going over to their body afterwards and being able to see specifically where you hit them. <laughs> like, there is there is something about the being able to trace the cause and effect of bullets that gives those bullets greater significance within the game when they are like hit scan weapons where yeah, I just sound like a terrifying lunatic, don't I? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try and walk this back now. Uh because yeah, I would but it would just be it would be just as good if it was paint. Like I don't actually <laughs> need it to be a terrible polygonal wound as it was in Soul True Fortune too. Like it wasn't the gore of it that I was actually enjoying. Um
2: Destiny is a really good example of how to do like kind of pretend gore so when you like headshots have um headshots have bespoke animations in that game and none of them involve blood they involve often gas <laughs> um so their head explodes and loads of gas goes <laughs> out of the top and that is very satisfying and is basically as good as gore i think in most games um though having said that i also love sekiro and um sekiro incredibly bloody <laughs> um but that's part of the kind of the, the sort of samurai film lineage mm-hmm. i think like the, the sprays of blood are actually part of that kind of filmic heritage uh, that it has to realize as part of its part of that genre
0: it's also not in any way realistic like i mean no, we talk no. about gore but you know gore in reality is nothing like gore in horror films or in video games where there's just huge splashes of gelatinous blood Hmm. like you know somebody gets shot in real life a tiny hole opens in them and they fall down uh and it's it's kind of in fact it's it's way more disturbing to see real violence because (laughs) there is a sort of instantly recognizable minimalism to it uh, you, you know there's just something about a way that a, a person falls when you know that they've they're now unconscious in a way which just doesn't doesn't happen in horror films where somebody's gargling you know and screaming and there's blood spraying everywhere
2: yeah and i, um, I watch a lot of ufc which is um i really enjoyed the sport but that is like um, when things go badly for one particular fighter it is just pure violence and you're absolutely right there's something quite understated about it when something really bad happens to someone um, they are very good at not showing pain ever so if someone gets kneed in the face and it shatters the forehead they they look disconcerted and that's about and then they fall over and that's the extent yeah. of it um, and that's kind of yeah you're right it's like there's, there's something very showy and overstated about the way most game violence is depicted um, and often it's like often I think it, a lot of it is about like communicating to the player that you've actually hit someone so mm. a big spray of blood or a big kind of like um, the Call of Duty kind of cheats a little bit by having this little cross appear in your crosshairs this little red cross when you've actually hit, hit someone um, and I think like it's a combination of the sort of gore fantasy and also communicating to the player that you've actually done a good shoot at someone <laughs>
0: Uh, Coloss writes, hi, um, I just listened to episode three, three, two nutted to death by Guy Fieri's helicopter. <laughs> and I heard about how Tom senior has begun his chess journey. I'm a long time listener. I've been listening since the PCG UK days. Uh, and about 10 years ago, I was really into chess. I know there's a lot of resources to learn chess from now, but I think that one of the best I ever encountered is chess master Eleven, I guess. XI, maybe. Um, Grand Master Edition. The tutorial is voiced by Josh Weitzkin. if that means anything to you. It doesn't mean anything to me, I'm afraid. Um, it is re- extremely informative and fun, especially the towel segments. <laughs> They're really ep- epic games. This is just like a language I'm not familiar This is like Chris talking about Destiny. Um, <laughs> if you want to just play, there's a ton of personalities at every ELO to play against, each with its own quirks and playstyles which I believe mimic people very closely. It's kind of hard to get a copy, but if you can find one, I think you'll greatly enjoy it. Do you have any idea what that's about, Tom? I understood about 40% of that, and okay. uh, but I, I'm I'm very grateful
2: for the recommendation because um, I'm still exploring chess resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've re- recently started watching Chess24 on Twitch, and there's currently um, a, a live tournament happening over the next couple of weeks. And uh, we've got like um, Magnus Carlsen, who's on a... On a cruise ship somewhere, <laughs> playing <laughs> chess with the uh, and uh, with a, a man who uh, has received a contractual dispensation to be allowed to watch cricket or play Hearthstone on his second screen. As he plays professional chess. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, it's a strange world. Um, and actually, like, it's very fun to watch the commentators, who are all grandmasters. But they're absolute nerds. <laughs> they, they're absolutely like sort of telly nerds, and uh, they're just talking about like episodes twenty-four. As um, they're also sort of like gaming out possible, you know, the way that like, this professional game might play out in the next sort of twenty turns. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been greatly enjoying that, and I'd like to also. Um, Uh, say thank you to the person who recommended that I play Go. And uh, as I responded to him, say that I have played Go all my life and it's an amazing game and possibly the more fulfilling game to learn than chess because chess is so kind of so complex and there's so much theory, whereas Go is much more accessible um, and the rules are much simpler. um, And it's a brilliant, brilliant game that everyone should try. I don't think I've ever
0: played it. I will teach you. Awesome. All right. It's very good. It's really good. That'll be uh, the post-COVID treat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he also says, uh, by the way, I got into Ale a few years ago um, uh, because I, I studied in London. And before going there, I asked you guys if there was anything I should try in the UK. And you said, Ale, great suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> well done, us. Um, he also asked a question, how much do you value portability? I'm always torn between playing a game on my PC at 120Hz and a great screen or playing them on the go on my Switch at a much higher price and a mediocre 30Hz screen. Cheers, Carlos.
1: I own a Switch and I take it with me on the rare occasions where I travel anywhere um, and then I do not play it at all. It just sits at the bottom of my bag. Sometimes when I'm at home, I open up the Switch and I go <coughs> to the, the Nintendo eShop and I, I buy some new games and then I set them downloading. Close the switch. Never play them. Um, I also own several Game Boys, Vita, which I've never played, uh, and I'm I'm I've currently got the the page open for the Analog Pocket, which Analog are a company which make really fancy looking retro consoles, and the Pocket is their kind of hardware emulation of a Game Boy Advance, and it looks lovely, and it's three hundred dollars. And I, if I bought this and I'm thinking about it, <laughs> I would never play it. I would just never play it. I know I would never play it, but it looks so nice. I like the aesthetics of portability uh, in hardware, but no, apparently it's not a thing I need in my life.
2: I used to have a, a notebook which uh, could run almost nothing, but it could do Spelunky. Um, and to me, that's like uh, my favorite portable experience. Um, I've got a Switch as well. and I play that a lot uh, as I'm traveling around and it's a brilliant thing. Um, but Splunky on a very
0: cheap notebook <laughs> is, is a very good time. I have a question for you guys. Oh. Or rather, I'm gonna steal a question from TJ House, who actually asked it in uh, in the stuck in the muck subsection of the Creating Crowbar Discord. Um, <laughs> but it was a really good question. I started typing out an answer though. I was like,
1: hmm, no.
0: I shall ask it of the of the of the my fellow podders. Um so his question was where where do people stand on modifying graphical settings to increase like the chances of Uh, successful man shoots he was talking specifically about hunt showdown but i think this is generally applicable like do you do you reduce quality to reduce clutter to get more frames per second or are you the kind of people who just crank it uh into exceedingly pretty and leave it there do you feel like it's cheating is is my addendum to the question to where where is the threshold for you between uh performance enhancement and actual cheating hmm
1: that's a good question actually like i i don't consider it cheating like if you can do it certainly if you can do it from the options menu of the game then it's fair and i don't do any particular tweaks like in most instances i am not not good enough at a multiplayer game to get real further gains from that (laughs) kind of tweakery you know like i've played a few rounds of hunt showdown um not like the graphical settings are not the stumbling block I'm experiencing when I'm dying in that game over and over again. I have done it in the past, though, particularly with Quake 3, where I got really into Quake 3, played it a lot, particularly one-on-one against friends, um, and... If you would just tone down some of the graphical settings, then the, the the player models would pop out better against the backgrounds and stuff like that, particularly at distance. And so I did that. Um and I think I at the time I followed like a guide from a, a Quick3 Pro or something, which involved not just doing it via the menu settings, but like actually ed- editing config files um in order to change settings that way. At that point start to get slightly uneasy about it. Because once you're editing a text file that's bundled with it, eh, technically those those options are exposed to the, to the player, but it starts to feel a little bit less intended by the designers that you edit those things. Uh, but I did do it, and I don't regret having done it, and it was beneficial. So, yeah. <laughs> Tom?
2: Um, I'm, I'm a cranker mosh. <laughs> I I crank to the max, and I, I don't stop no no what no matter what the frame rate does. Um, <laughs> I derive no pleasure from being good at the game. Only uh, that the the game going into my eyeballs is of the highest quality uh, visually. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would say. <laughs> um, it's a, yeah. I I've actually done this before for racing games, like like really old ones where. I've turned all the, the graphics down just to get that kind of 60 frames a second, but also just because I'm bad at seeing the corners, which is <laughs> which is really bad for a racing game. You need to be able to see the corners. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I found it easier almost at low resolutions with less geometry to actually kind of like pass the track. Um, uh, but that's the only time I've ever done it. Um, and I, I remain bad at racing games even today.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah it's a, it's an interesting one because uh I I feel like the, the question this the, well not specifically uh TJ's question but just the the question of where this threshold is in general between cheating and performance enhancement assumes like there is any kind of platonic level playing field that it's possible to achieve with different people's setups and different people's abilities and like it, hunt is really interesting for this because oh, there's loads of different parts to it but for one thing I actually f- Found it was easier to perceive movement at a lower frame rate um, hmm. because it's you know it's it's just more abrupt uh, <laughs> and so your you, your eyes pick it up more easily. So actually, having a higher graphical setting uh, may help to reduce the frame rate and thus make people more visible. I don't know; it's not scientific. But the other thing is, my my setup is is shit, and uh, it really does make a big difference. For to the extent that people who are spectating me can see a lot more than i can on my monitor like to the extent that my 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 hardware is not rendering uh somebody on the other side of a fence and not only can uh somebody who's watching me see through a hole in the fence but they can see the person on the other side of it very clearly and so like i feel like given that shouldn't i be allowed to have (laughs) have some other kind of conversation (laughs) Like even at the resolution I play, the smoke effects are completely different so that they're more or less opaque to me and they're not opaque to people who are playing at higher resolutions. So I don't feel too bad about if were there any ways that I could uh, affect the settings. There there are things you can, can do um, using NVIDIA's overlays. Like uh, NVIDIA's overlays are on the borderline of what feels cheaty to me because they so completely... Like you can have an overlay which just... Uh, it sort of like emphasizes all the all the edges of everything and on on levels in, in hunt showdown which is which are foggy, having this filter turned on really helps you know things pop out uh, from that that, that fog. Um, and I, I don't really feel that's that's cool, but at the same time, my monitor is so bad that it renders night levels basically unplayable. So mm. maybe <laughs> maybe it's okay to to add a filter which really cranks up the the the, the brightness. I was about to say that um, gamma and brightness
2: are the, are the two secret weapons um, that, that I've needed to actually make myself better at games. Um, like uh, when Chris and I uh, did our bloodborne playthrough. I couldn't see a fucking thing in that game. (laughs) I'm amazed I killed anything. Um, But once we actually bumped up the the gamma and actually I could see the crows, (laughs) (laughs) the crows, um, it it became a lot easier. And I found that like for almost all games, that's true. (laughs) I don't know why games sort of like just on my television as well as my monitor just always seem too dark.
0: Um, it's that thing where they always they get the two icons. and They so turn move the slider until the icon on the right. left is invisible. I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah, so that icon yeah. on the left is going to be bright and clear, and I'm going to enjoy the game. It's like, yeah, stop, much. stop feeding me this bullshit.
1: I,
2: <laughs> I know how this goes. For sure.
1: So I I always feel bad about that. So I always I don't make it invisible. I'll admit to that, but I always make it. Mostly invisible. Like I'm not as comfortable with it just being completely bright on that left hand side one that should be invisible. A strange negotiation with like a developer who can't see me and doesn't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but also that developer is wrong.
0: Fundamentally, <laughs> there's, there's art directors who are shaking their heads right now. <laughs> deep, deep disappointment. You know, I'm joking, of course. <laughs> On, though. well those are the, the questions we had um, Tom I think you had an announcement to make yes
2: uh, so um, keep an eye on your podcast feeds because uh, hopefully all things uh, go well um, you'll see a kind of film and telly podcast dropping into your current crowbar feed this is like a total freebie we're not charging patrons for it at all it's just a kind of a little experiment and I'll be joined by uh, Jamie Britton who uh, co-created Skins which is a brilliant coming of age and oh. uh, um, uh, comedy drama um and yeah he has very good taste in telly and so in the first episode we're going to talk about um a very strange show called the shivering truth and the brilliant brilliant devs um so yeah um give it a download give us a listen um
0: i can't wait to do it yeah that sounds great yeah, it's going to be awesome. So, yes, if you'd like to send us another question, you can do so at questions at crowbar.com or you can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. All these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube where you can find other stuff by us. Uh, the address for that is youtube.com slash crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers and Patreon. You can back us, too, at patreon.com slash crowbar. You can simply join our lovely Discord community, uh, the link for which is on our website, which is crowbar.com We're all off to uh, drink milkshakes on our biscuit planet. I've been Marsh David. <laughs> I've been talking it.
1: <laughs> and I've been Graham Smith.
0: Fairly well. For <laughs> thanks for
1: listening. <laughs> <laughs> party. <laughs> <laughs>